Hello and welcome. James Kenny here, and this is my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number five, entitled The Reformation and Its Effects in Ireland. This is a review of this episode, and I have added as an outro the original song, St. Patrick and King Henry VIII. I hope you like this episode and that you might tell others on social media about it. And if you wish, you can become a patron by visiting www.landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. At least, continue to follow and like. The Roman Catholic world was about to be divided in Europe into many hostile religious camps. A flourish of new religions sprung or sprouted from the original Christian religion, and they have been controversial in their actions ever since. No country has suffered as much as Ireland for being faithful to St. Patrick since he brought Christianity to replace the pagan Druids. But this new Reformation would create more enemies for the Irish believers going forward in the land of the Golden Sunset. The authority of the Pope was tested when the movement known as the Reform or Reformation began in Germany. This was a heresy which bred revolution. It was claimed that temporal rulers should have supreme authority in all religious matters within their own territory. A list of abuses were listed for change. These included the worldliness of some popes, which could cause scandal, that cardinals who were also noblemen while in office were guilty of promoting their own followers and accumulating wealth and riches, the marriage of clergy, and the holding of many high offices by one person, were other items of contention. The German bishop Martin Luther reacted to Pope Leo X and his doctrine. He organised against him in such a way that he was excommunicated in 1519. The founder of Presbyterianism was John Calvin, 1509 to 1564. He settled in Geneva in 1540. His religion was one of doom and gloom. Amusements were banned, as was any excessive personal dress or adornment. This was the abolition of personal liberty, and the breach of any of these rules meant imprisonment. John Knox, a pupil of Calvin and founder of Scottish Presbyterianism, persecuted Roman Catholics and burned monasteries and confiscated church land. He continued to rail and preach against Catholicism until his death in 1572. Henry VIII was not in favour of Luther's challenge to the dogma of Rome. He wrote a defence of the seven sacraments, and for this the Pope granted him the title Defender of the Faith. This title is inscribed on the escutcheons 
of all British monarchs, even to the present time. The English king, however, broke with Rome when he sought to secure a divorce from his lawful wife, Catherine of Aragon. Pope Leo X refused to allow the dissolution of the marriage. So Henry appointed Thomas Cranmer Archbishop of Canterbury in 1529, and he promptly gave Henry his freedom to marry Anne Boleyn. In 1534, the Act of Supremacy declared Henry as head of the Church of England. It is said that Queen Elizabeth I had extraordinarily little religious feelings, and her policy seemed to be to pursue a midway course between Catholicism and Calvinism. The Annats were restored again to the crown, and the 39 Articles of Religion drawn up as a statement of Anglican belief. In a vain effort to meet Catholic objections, a second book of common prayer was introduced and was made obligatory. All this religious revolution had a devastating effect on Ireland, as will be seen in the following story. We now approach a stage in the history of one of the oldest civilizations known to man, which is about to be humiliated by attempts to exterminate the very existence of the Irish. At this time in history, when the monarchs of Europe were creating modern nations out of the medieval patchwork of lands under the control of different princes and dukes, the strongest nations were the Spanish, followed by the Dutch and English. Early in King Henry's reign, the 8th Earl of Kildare, Gerald Fitzgerald, died, while on an expedition against the O'Carrolls. He was mortally wounded when watering his horse in a river called Greece at Kilkay. He was conveyed back to Kildare for burial on or around the 3rd of September 1513. He served as Lord Deputy of Ireland from 1477 to 1494 and from 1496 onwards. His power was so great that he was called the uncrowned King of Ireland. He was succeeded by his son Gerald Og, whom the Crown of England appointed to the position held by his father, namely Lord Deputy. Gerald Og soon found his enemies at court plotting to overthrow him. The King liked him, but Cardinal Wolsey hated his guts. At that time also, James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, 10th Earl of Desmond, had plans to drive the English out of Ireland. Wolsey heard of the plot and caused the Earl of Desmond to be summoned to London. James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald declined, and the King sent a messenger to his viceroy in Ireland, the Earl of Kildare, to clap Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, the Earl of Desmond, in irons and ship him to London. When Kildare failed, Cardinal Wolsey accused him of high treason, and Gerald Oge was summoned to England to answer the charge. He was immediately committed to the Tower of London, where he died of grief on the 12th of December, 1534. 
Before leaving for London, he had appointed his son, 21-year-old Thomas, to fill his place in his absence. Thomas was quite a dandy in his personal attire and mode of dress. This earned him the name Silken Thomas. Many lies were now passed on to Silken Thomas by his enemies in London, which caused him to wage war against those who voiced opposition against the Kildares. He had success for a time, and dispatched ambassadors to the Pope and to the Emperor Charles V, seeking assistance in his war against the Antichrist, Henry VIII of England. But circumstances went wrong, and he and five of his uncles were captured, shipped to London, where they were beheaded at Tyburn on the 3rd of February, 1537. Merchants were helping to enrich their monarchs and were gaining power and influence, such as Francis Drake, who, having been born poor and brought up by pirates, was knighted by Elizabeth I in spring 1581. He had been sent on a three-year expedition, instructed to take revenge on King Philip of Spain, and returned with a huge haul of gold, silver and pearls, which to this very day is under safe keeping at the Tower of London. King Henry VIII was hoping that by eliminating the opposition, he would have secured authority over Ireland, but he was wrong. The line was intact and preserved by a 12-year-old boy who was hidden and protected by his aunts, who were married to the chiefs of Offaly and Donegal. They sent young Gerald to Rome to be educated, and at a later period, in the reign of Catholic Queen Mary, she allowed him in her generosity, to return to Ireland. Young Lord Kildare became the sole male representative of the Geraldine Kildares at the age of 12 and was half-brother to Silken Thomas. During his exile from Ireland, Gerald Fitzgerald fought with the Knights of Rhodes against the Turks and travelled as far as Tripoli in Libya, then held by the Knights of St. John. Following the death of Henry VIII in 1547, young Gerald travelled to England and was received at the court of Edward VI. The young king restored the Kildare lands to him at this time. During the reign of Mary I, Gerald Fitzgerald assisted in suppressing the rebellion of Sir Thomas Wyatt in 1554 and he was then restored as 11th Earl of Kildare and Baron of Offaly. He returned to Ireland soon after. The policy of subjugation continued unabated when the title passed down from Henry to Edward and Mary and then Elizabeth. But it mattered little to Ireland who sat on the throne of England. James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald of Desmond waged war with the help of a Spanish army, who landed with mixed forces, including some Italians. 
numbering about 800, and under the command of Lieutenant Sebastian San Joseph and General Hercules Pisano. At the papal court, Fitzmaurice met adventurer Captain Thomas Stuckley, and together they persuaded the Pope to underwrite the cost of 1,000 troops to invade Ireland, most of whom were thieves and vagabonds and robbers. The Pope wished to get out of Italy. Fitzmaurice and Stuckley were to rendezvous in Lisbon and proceed to Ireland. However, Stuckley decided to throw his lot in and instead supported King Sebastian's expedition to Morocco, where Stuckley died. Forces led by Lord Grey de Wilton, and including Sir Walter Raleigh, attacked Desmond's unsuspecting force, and even when they surrendered, they were attacked and cruelly butchered without mercy. Their bodies were thrown over a cliff and landed on the rocks on the shore below. This is known in Irish history as the Massacre of Smerwick. Three decades later, when Raleigh had fallen from favour, his involvement with this massacre was brought against him as a criminal charge in one of his trials. Raleigh argued that he was obliged to obey the commands of his superior officer, but he was unable to exonerate himself, and he was executed on the 29th of October, 1618, chiefly for his involvement in the main plot to remove King James I. In the year 1577, Sir Francis Cosby, commander of the English troops in Offaly and Leeks, summoned all the leading families with their kinsmen and friends to a grand banquet at the Fort Mullochmast in County Kildare. The O'Moores, O'Kellys, Lawlers and O'Nolans and all the Irish nobility with their retinue of servants and friends rode in a great cavalcade into the fort in response to the invitation. They thought this was a kind gesture and hoped it would lead to reconciliation. However, they were wrong. And on a signal from the diabolic Sir Francis Cosby, 400 unsuspecting Irish were butchered. They were surrounded on every side by four lines of soldiers and cavalry who proceeded to shoot and slaughter them without mercy, so that not a single individual escaped and their bodies were piled up within the fort. After this terrible massacre, there was a slim chance of raising a force to defend their property from the greed of the English. But the surviving young sons of the slain gathered a force under Rory Og O'Moore, and they attacked and harassed the English garrisons, swooping down on them to the cries of, Remember, Mullock Mast. Having rallied the young clansmen of Idrone, Offaly and Leeks, the Irish led by Fiach MacHugh O'Byrne took up their positions in the mountain passes of Glenmalur and prepared to attack a large force of English under Lord Grey. When Grey arrived with his army, his orders were to entrap the Irish and stop them from escaping. Lord Grey de Wilton had just arrived from London on the 12th of August 1580. He recruited a force of 6,000 and was sent as Lord Deputy of Ireland 
to quell the Second Desmond Rebellion. When he heard of the guerrilla warfare being carried out by the young sons of Erin, he decided to retaliate. So on August the 25th, he set out to give battle. His first main encounter was when he led an army of about 3,000 men in the Battle of Glenmalure, County Wicklow, where his army was routed by Fierke McHugh O'Byrne with casualties of 800. The tide of combat turned against the English, and a proven account is given of this battle in letters written to London by Sir William Stanley, an English officer who was at the scene. In the correspondence, now safely preserved, he writes, We were forced to slide three or four fathoms, the way being full of stones, rocks, logs of wood, in the bottom a river full of loose stones, which we were driven to cross diverse times. Down swept the young Irish gales. Burney, son of Rory Ogo Moore, and his section had their revenge in battle when they slew the son and grandson of the demon Sir Francis Cosby. The English troops now broke in disorder. Lord Grey, furious and distraught, ordered up the reserves, which he had positioned to lay the trap for the total annihilation of Fierke McHugh's brave soldiers. But all this was in vain. Discipline was cast aside in panic. Lord Grey got to his horse and fled the scene with his attendants to tell the tale of disaster which had been inflicted on them with casualties of 800. A method used by the rulers of England was to try and divide some members of the ruling clans in Ireland and to train them to their own purposes. In other words, divide and conquer, or if you cannot beat them, join them. So it was, when young Hugh O'Neill of the Royal House of O'Neills of Ulster, whose flag bears the earliest symbol, the red hand, he was brought to court of Queen Elizabeth I in London. It was planned that one day, through him, to bring the unconquerable Irish in Ulster within the power of England. His tutors tried to eradicate his Irishness, but his inner self began to struggle between the two allegiances. His Gaelic culture began to win out, and so when he returned to his native land, he dedicated himself to free Ireland from domination by England. Now back in Ulster, he became friendly with the reigning chief O'Neill, whom the Queen meant for him to overthrow some day. He was not a traitor, and went on to prove this in later years. Some Irish were currying favour with the ruling English by changing to their new religion. To secure well-paid positions and power, they adopted the English way of speaking and thinking, thus laying the foundation of what became known as the Anglo-Irish. The Gaelic-Irish despised them and shunned them, but they soon became their landlords, securing large tracts of land by subterfuge from the natives, whom they hired as workers and became their tenants. They now became known as the ascendancy class and acted as rent collectors for the absentee landlords. The alliance between rulers and merchants came to be called mercantilism. Thinkers were turning away from 
medieval religion towards reason and science. These were practical people, often merchants or royal officials, who wrote about how kings and queens could best look after the wealth of their nation. People such as Gerd de Melines, 1586-1641, and Thomas Munn, 1571-1641. Melines wrote that England needed a healthy stock of gold and that its economic disease was too many purchases of foreign goods and too few sales of English goods. Munn wrote, The best way for England to get gold was not Drake's method of stealing from foreign ships, but rather by selling to foreigners as many goods as possible. Christian faith. Henry couldn't get his way with the Pope to marry Anne Boleyn and divorce Catherine. So he started a new English religion and everyone was forced to join in. We won't change our fate for King Henry St. Patrick's Day to celebrate on St. Patrick's Day Thank you. 